Amen. Uh, so let me introduce myself again in case you weren't here at the beginning of the service. My name is Drew, and I am a pastor here at Redeemer. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. We are going to transition a little bit away from Ephesians, which is what we've been doing all this spring. <clears throat> As we lead up to Easter, we want to just take a moment and really focus our attention on what is the heartbeat of this church, which is the gospel. We talk about the gospel a lot. And so we just want to take a number of weeks, and as we head towards the resurrection, back up a few weeks and talk about some of the things even that led up to the resurrection, and so start a new series that we're calling The Gospel of Jesus. Uh, and this morning we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2. It's a pretty famous passage, so if you have a Bible and you want to turn there, feel free to, uh, but if not, don't worry. It's printed for you in the worship folder. It's behind me on the screen. You can follow along there. If you're at home, it'll be on your screen as well, so let's, uh, let's read this this well-known passage together, uh, one of the high points of the scriptures for sure. Beginning in verse 1, we'll read to verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes to the Philippian Christians, <clears throat> So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is God's word. If you would say with me, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So I'm intimidated by this text because uh, it is so condensed. I guess we should be used to this by now because it is Paul's way. He's been doing this to us in Ephesians, but he's also been, it's also true here. This is a highly, highly doctrinal, highly theological, highly condensed passage of Scripture. And it is intimidating to take it in one crack, but that's what we're going to try to do this morning. So here's my question. When you think of God, what words come to mind? When you think of God, of who he is, of what he's like, what words come to mind? I ask that question often, and people, you know, are full of answers. Uh, he is wise, he is loving, he's holy, he's sovereign, he's all of these things. In all of the, in all of the times that I've asked that question, no one has ever answered, God is humble. And yet, it is my favorite thing about him. And it's what this text teaches, which is why the text itself is so powerful. And I want you to see, this is an account of the humility of God as shown in the humility of Jesus or the humiliation of Jesus in coming from earth and so forth to die upon a cross for our sins. But here's, here's why this is important. If, in fact, the world's ills are due to the pride and self-centeredness of man, as Christianity claims, then... All of that can only be overturned by humility and sacrificial love. But it must be humility and love on such a scale that it can undo all of sin and death. And indeed, that's exactly what the apostle claims here, that Jesus, 
who was God, did not grasp at his glory. That's what the word he means there. He did not grasp at his glory, his place in heaven, but he gave it away and came to earth on a rescue mission. Now, the story in Genesis, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that it describes sin as the opposite of that. It describes sin as a grasping by man for godness. A grasping for control, for self-sufficiency, for independence, for power, for resources beyond the limitations of our humanity. And so if that is what sin is, this grasping onto what does not rightfully belong to ours, then it makes sense that we would be told here that sin is undone by Jesus not grasping for the glory and the divinity that was rightfully his, but instead making himself nothing, submitting to the limitations of our humanity that were foreign to his godness. It's amazing, really. It's an amazing passage, an amazing truth. And that is true in the ultimate sense, but here's what I want to make sure that we understand. It is also true in the practicalities of daily life. The focus of this text is on our humility and sacrificial love as an echo of the greater humility and love displayed in the incarnation. We're all sinners. Let's just get that on the table. We're all sinners, and the consequences of sin that we experience, struggling marriages, failed relationships, you know, problems at work, even our own drivenness and other epi desires that we experience internally that dominate us, all of these things are due to our own pride and selfishness, to our personal grasping for godness, for preeminence. But it's in small things. It's in the small things where this really comes home to us. 20 years of being married to someone who is not willing to admit when they're wrong and the cumulative effect that has in a relationship or, or to be, try, to be a friend, try to be a friend to a person who has to win every argument or someone who's controlling and manipulative and hypercritical because of their own insecurities and fears. It's as we navigate the accumulation of these small acts of pride and self-centeredness that harden our hearts towards one another, that this home, this text really comes home. It's just one example. There are thousands of other ways to say what I'm trying to say here. But this text makes the claim that Jesus' humility and love can empower your own. And as it does so, it does so toward reconciliation and healing and beauty, even within yourself and with yourself and then with others and then into all the world. That is the trajectory these words here put us on. And so here's what we need to see as we look at this, again, very famous passage. I want you to see, and we want to start with what we should start with, and that is the beauty of Jesus' humility. There's a beauty to the way Paul describes Jesus' humility here. But secondly, the beauty of his humility creates an echo that is the necessity of our own humility. The only response to his humility is to offer yourself in the same way that he does and in order to do that, you have to also be grounded in the hope that makes humility possible. So the beauty of his humility and the necessity of our own and the hope that makes following him into our own acts of humility and love and sacrifice possible. Let's look at the text through those headings. So let's just, we're going to start in the middle, kind of make our ways to both ends from the middle. So first, let's look at the beauty of Jesus' humility. And this is the core of the text beginning in verse 6 where it describes the incarnation of Jesus and, and the subsequent acts of humility. It says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's verses 6 through 8. Now, this is called in Christian theology the humiliation of Christ, his state of humiliation. Jesus laid aside his previous status and privilege to embrace humility and love. In our way of saying, the way we say it around here is, it was his journey down into the bottom of the J-curve. Right? That's our parlance. So down into the bottom of the J-curve. But there are layers, and that's what makes the text here so overwhelming, that it was not just a single act, but a series of acts. And so let's look at, look at some of the layers here. It says, the first layer was the incarnation itself. So clearly, Paul says, Jesus was God. This is what Christians believe. If you're new to Christianity or if you're here and you're not a Christian and you're exploring things, we believe that Jesus Christ, who we celebrated Easter, he was God. He was the second person of the Trinity. He existed eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit, co-equal with the same power and glory and authority as the other persons of the Godhead, rightfully his. And yet it says the, the wonder of, this, of, the, of the incarnation here is that even though that was true, he did not grasp onto it. But instead, he willingly, intentionally, joyfully let it go, making himself nothing by taking upon humanity and being born in the likeness of men. God became the God-man in an act of infinite humility and love. But I want to focus on the phrase, verse 6, where it says he made himself nothing, because this is... This is a 2,000-year-long debate raging about what exactly those words mean because in some ways, the entire essence of Christianity is tied up in how you understand that one phrase. So some translations say he emptied himself. Well, then the question becomes, well, what, if that's true, then in what sense did he empty himself? What did he empty himself of? Did he empty himself of his divinity in becoming human? And this is kind of the debate that has raged throughout the millennia B.B. Warfield, who's a Princeton theologian around uh, the end of the 20th century, he, he, uh, he preached a sermon on this text. It's a beautiful sermon. I know preachers are prone to exaggeration, but I promise you I'm not exaggerating when I say it may be my all-time favorite sermon in the history of sermons. Uh, the title of the sermon is Imitating the Incarnation. And he said that the language here, verse 6, in the form of God means that Jesus possessed the specific character of God. He had all of the qualities that make God, God, and distinguish him from everything that is not God. And when it says that he emptied himself, Jesus emptied himself not by ceasing to be what he was before. He did not stop being God. Okay, you you follow me? This sounds really technical, I know. I promise the whole sermon won't be this boring, okay? But this is really important stuff. He did not stop being God. He became a God-man. He didn't empty himself of his godness. So what did he empty himself of? It was not his godness. He emptied himself of self. I have to be honest. I thought that would get some hmm from the room. So I don't know if you're asleep or if my hearing, I need to like check my ears. But that is a profound statement, I think. Warfield says he emptied himself of self. And here, I, I, if you notice in your outline, I put the entire quote there for you because he, Warfield soars here in this sermon. Here's what he says. He says, he who was in the form of God took such thought for us that he made no account for himself. 
Into the immeasurable calm of the divine blessedness, he permitted this thought to enter, I will die for men. And so mighty was his love, so colossal his divine purpose to save, that he thought nothing of his divine majesty, nothing of his unsullied blessedness, nothing of his equality with God, but absorbed in us our needs, our misery, our helplessness. He did not cultivate self, even his divine self. He was not led by his divine impulses out of the world. He was led by his love for others into the world to forget himself in the needs of others. Okay, I still feel like you're not tracking with me. That is like... I, don't, that, I mean, that is the word. I mean, that really is. I mean, I don't know... How, right? This is, this is the God that we're here to worship this morning who was led into the world by his love to forget himself and the needs of others and to sacrifice self once and for all on the altar of sympathy. It's astounding. I mean, it really is astounding. And it, but here's the thing. It's only the first layer of what Paul says is true in this text. Because you see, he talks about the incarnation, but then there's a second layer to his humility, humility because it says he came from heaven to earth and that was the biggest step of all, perhaps. But when he came, he was not born in a palace. The Magi, remember, went to the palace in search of him, but he was not there. He was born to a peasant family. His crib was an animal feeding trough. He worked a blue-collar job alongside his father for most of his life. Would you come up with that strategy for God coming to earth? Not right. No. That is the right answer. It's just so extraordinary. It's so extraordinary that when God decided to come to earth, it says, verse 7, he took the form of a servant. Isaiah, the prophet, said it like this. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him or beauty that we should desire him. That doesn't mean Jesus was ugly. It means he was ordinary. There was, at first glance, nothing special about him, nothing that tipped off who he really was. There was no natural appeal he was not a celebrity. He lived a quiet life in, a rel in relative obscurity in a remote part of a tiny little country that the rest of the world was really not even aware of. We have very little information about the first 30 years uh, or so of his life. About 90% of his life we have almost no information about. Now think about that. This is the most important person. People have written volumes on George Washington. In every detail, this is the most important person that has ever lived. And we know almost nothing about 90% of the time he was here on the earth. Why? Because Jesus himself said, the son of man came not to, to, to be served, but to serve. Even in his ministry, he did not draw attention to himself. He told people to keep quiet about the miracles he performed, you remember? The incarnation was the model for his whole life. He made himself nothing by coming to earth and then kept making himself nothing all throughout his life because he cared, he cared far more about honoring others than his own reputation. He exhausted himself caring for and healing the crowds. He washed his ungrateful, sinful disciples' feet. He forgave those who nailed him to the cross. He took the time in the last moment of his life to make sure his mother was going to be taken care of for the rest of her life. He unselfishly assured the thief on the cross of his place in the kingdom as he was laboring for breath. It's stunning. It's stunning. But that's not all. There's a third layer. 
Because it says, though he came from heaven to earth and he came as a servant, it says, and even in serving, he was obedient even to death on a cross. And that is the ultimate act of humility and love. It's clear. It's clear as you read the Gospels. I got to be careful here. I'm bumping up against some mystery, okay? So don't get mad at me. We can talk about it later if you disagree. But here's the way I want to say it for the sake of impact. I'm being a little sensational here. But I want to say it's clear as you read that he did not want to go to the cross, at least some part of him. He did not, he, he prayed three times in Gethsemane to that end. He did not, there was a part of him, he did not want to go. It's also clear that he did not have to go to the cross. Remember he said, I could ask the Father, he would send angels to rescue me. So he did not want to go and he did not have to go. And yet it says, he gave himself up for us all. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. And so he did not have to go. He did not want to go, but he went because he loves you. And in the cross, Jesus counted you more significant than himself. <laughs> God counted you more significant than him. See, this is, we can be more God-centered than God is sometimes. God counted you more significant than himself. He looked to your interests ahead of his own. I, again, mystery. Don't bring me up on charges of heresy, Okay. I'm trying to get this into your heart a little bit, to, massage, to be a little sensational here. The rightful king of heaven and earth made himself nothing so that you might be made spiritually rich. He gave himself up to death so that you might live. He put himself in your place, taking upon himself your sin, your condemnation, so that he might give to you as a gift his righteousness, his status with the Father. That's the gospel that Christianity has for the world, the good news, Jesus. I mean, that's it. And it's beautiful. The beauty of his humility. It's overwhelming if you just stop and let yourself think about it for a minute. But secondly, here's the thing, is it requires a response. And so we see the necessity of our own humility. Because Paul says, if you back up, he describes all of this in verses 6 through 8. But if you back up a little bit, he's describing this because of what he's trying to work into the heart and lives of these people. And in us as well. He says, verse 5, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to explain what I've just explained to you. But it's an odd way to phrase it. The mind of Christ, Paul says. Have the mind of Christ. And it means something like this. It means let Jesus' humility and love be the lens through which you look at your own life. Use it to imagine the way you're going to live your life and the details of your life. Live from the starting place of what he has done for you and then and as you seek to love and serve others. Have your mind made up ahead of time that you know what God demands of you and the, and the good life is a life of imitating Jesus' humility by humbling yourself for the sake of others. That's what that verse means. And so that verse, verse 5, is the bridge between the description of Jesus' humility in verses 6 through 8, which are so beautiful and so powerful, and the description of our humility in verses 3 through 4. And so we see there in those verses that humility has a certain shape, a certain form. So let's read those verses. Paul writes of the necessity of our humility as an echo of his humility and love for us. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So he's saying there's a natural way to live in selfishness and pride. And then there's a supernatural way to live, imitating Jesus' humility and love. And Christianity makes it possible. The beauty of Jesus' humility makes it possible for you to live a supernatural life of humility and love. But let's talk about the first, because they're really, let's talk about just naturally the way our hearts and our, our, our lives work. There really are two parts here, pride and selfishness. So Paul says, verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. 
Do you see those two words? Rivalry and conceit. And that is the natural way of the human heart. It's the opposite of humility. So notice the contrast. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility. So those two words are a description of pride. And conceit describes where pride comes from. Rivalry describes how pride lives or what pride does. And I want to look at each of them for a minute. So conceit describes where pride comes from. It's a word. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite words, actually, in, in the scriptures. It's a word in the Greek. It's a compound word. It's uh, the word kinodoxia or kinodoxoi. And kino is the same word in verse 7. This is what's fascinating. This is where being able to see the original languages is pretty neat. It says there that Jesus himself, he made himself nothing. He emptied himself. Remember we talked about that? That sense of emptying is what this word is. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus' love was an emptying. He was full and he, he emptied himself. But here it's describing how we are empty. How we exist. We're not full like him. We are empty and needing to be filled. Jesus' whole life was an emptying of his fullness in love. It was the essence of, of, of his obedience. Our life is driven by a search to be filled, to fill up the inner emptiness. That's the essence of our sin. But what? What are we empty of? What, what is it that we need to be full of that we don't have? And that's the second part of the word is, is the word doxa, which is glory, weight, significance, praise you put those two words together and here's what paul it's so it's such elegant um, you know psychology here he's saying we we are glory empty we are glory deficient we are glory hungry it's what jesus described in john 5 the difference between himself and the crowds that followed him he said and this has changed my life by the way is, can, you, can you tell i'm a little excited I mean, this has really, really changed me in profound ways to read Jesus saying, you do not have the love of God within you. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? We were made to get glory from God, but when we turned away from him in sin, we were, we were left with radical cosmic insecurity. And the result is that we need constant assurance that we are okay, that we're important, that we count. Because only, listen, please, only the glory that comes from God can fill the glory you need in your heart. That's why I say it's a, it's a cosmic insecurity. Only the glory that comes from God can fill that glory need. And here's what I want, when I say that, I want you to see that we are that, 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 we are that important, that, you, that your personhood is that great. Nothing else, no amount of work success will ever be enough. No intensity of romantic feelings. That is the magnitude of the human soul. That only God's infinite love can content and quiet your heart. And the way to happy feelings is not to achieve something that makes you important or for other people to see and applaud you and distinguish yourself and become Instagram famous. A billion, listen to me, a billion likes is a single drop of water in the ocean of emptiness and need inside the human heart. That's not the way. Here's the way. Do the small things. Just be faithful and content yourself in God's love. We were made to live forever. 
But because we've turned away from God, we're fading. Do you remember the picture? I'm going to date myself in the old Back to the Future movie where Marty keeps looking at the picture and his family's just kind of fading into nothingness. We were made to never be forgotten. We were made to last. We were made to live in the presence of God forever. But because of sin, we know we're dying. We know we're going to be forgotten. We don't feel real. And so we desperately are looking all throughout our life to other people to get them to affirm us, to get them to say, you're great, you're important, you're beautiful, you'll never be forgotten. And it's simply never enough. And the result is we walk around living in conceit. But then there's the other word, rivalry. So conceit describes where pride comes from, this glory emptiness, this glory deficiency, this glory hunger inside of us. And so what pride does is it expresses itself then in rivalry. Other translations use different words. Selfish ambition in the NIV. Selfishness, New King James Version. Strife in the King James Version, which is fascinating. But Lewis Mead says this. He says, pride is turning down God's invitation to join the dance of life as a creature in his garden and wishing instead to be the creator, independent, relying on one own, one's own resources. Pride is a cosmic put-on. The fantasy that we can make it as little gods leaves us as empty at the center. Once we decide that we have to make it on our own, we are attacked by the demons of fear and anxiety, so we learn to swagger, to bluff. Listen to this phrase. We force other people to act as buttresses for the shaky ego that pride created by emptying our soul of God. And here's how he describes it. He says, every time, because of this, every time you meet a new person, you consciously or unconsciously, you think, here's, here's the way your thought process works in the sinful dynamics of your heart. When you meet a new person, you think, how can this person contribute to my need to prove that I count? So life becomes a constant battle to use other people to bolster your own self and avoid having them use you in the same way for their own purposes. And what's the result? We're all going through life with selfish ambition. It's a dog-eat-dog world everywhere you go. But I like the ASV translation here, rivalry, because what it's getting at is that this pride and selfishness is competitive. Conceit puts you in competition with everyone else. That's the problem. It's not enough to just be faithful. You have to be first. You have to win. It's like C.S. Lewis said, nobody's proud of having something. They're proud of having more than somebody else. And this is why we're always fighting. This is why we're always splitting off into groups and saying, we're right and you're wrong, even in church. Right? We do this because we don't feel important. We aren't securing God's love. And so we're going through life trying to win at all costs. And if you've been paying attention, I think I'm in the clear to say it's getting worse and worse, especially as we culturally lose our moral connection to the historical Christianity. I mean, did you see Will Smith and Chris Rock this week? Holy cow. I mean, that is how hair-trigger competitive we've become. You make a joke, and you get physically assaulted and publicly humiliated, and then a little later, the man who smacks you wins an award and offers a pseudo-apology and talks about being a vessel for love and gets applauded. But then since then, they've turned on him now, you know. Netflix is canceling movies that Will Smith's in now, you know. And it's so confusing. Is anybody else confused? I'm so confused... 
Because, and and what, you're, what you're witnessing is the resulting chaos of a culture with no North Star, with no moral criteria, with no clarity, no consensus on even what being a vessel of love requires. Just outrage and violence and instant reaction and cancel culture and vague moral posturing. But Paul, see, has this vision for the church as an alternate kind of, of community of humility and love where verses 1 and 2... All kinds of different people with different opinions and different views and different cultural preferences and on different sides of issues can come together with the same mind and the same love in full accord. I love that word there in the Greek. It is simpsychos, the same self. The same soul. He's describing us. God's desire for our church is that we would be a people as different as we are, that together we would be the same soul. Differences that are superseded by a commitment to love and unity that is undergirded by, verse 1, encouragement, comfort, affection, and sympathy. These are the words that should describe God's people. You see them, encouragement, comfort, affection, and sympathy, but it takes a supernatural work of God to recreate a group of people who together race to the low place. The kind of humility Paul describes in verses 3 through four, three and 4 is not temperamental. It is supernatural. But here's what we see. Paul is saying that a Christian is a person who's been so smitten by the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of his humility, has caused the love of God to come so alive in their heart that they begin to live from the glory that comes from God. And as they do, they are made a beauty by the spirit of Jesus in them to count others more significant than themselves and to put them first. Pride says... Me before you. Or if you want to turn around, it says, you for me. You exist for my selfish purposes. I use you to get what I need. But humility flips that upside down. Humility is the opposite. It's you before me. Not you for me, you before me. Not you for me, but me for you. I exist to serve you and put and make your needs and interests the priority. So humility here. Verse 3, that word means gentle, modest, deferential. So when Paul wrote these words, this was a completely new idea. No culture in human history listed humility among its virtues, which is why nobody's ever said when they think of God, they think of humility. We see it as a weakness. It's a threat to society even. Slaves were supposed to be gentle and modest and deferential, but everyone else, strong, capable. And yet, this word or a form of it, is used 300 times in the Bible. Because it is the core of what it means to live and love and follow the God who himself is humble. Humility is a matter of where you look. Pride has ingrown eyeballs. Humility looks out. It looks to others, to their interests. It's self-forgetful, right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So here's my application to you. If your Christianity is making you proud, it's not Christianity. That sounds really hard. I'm sorry to be kind of harsh there, but I don't want to be self-righteous about self-righteousness, okay? Right? Right? I don't want to look how, I don't want to be proud about how humble I am. But if your Christianity is making you proud, it's not Christianity, it's just religion. If as you go further and further into Christianity, you're becoming more obstinate, 
more opinionated, more unbending, more disagreeable, can I just suggest to you you're on some other path other than the path of discipleship to Jesus? Because Christianity is grace. Lewis said pride is competitive and the fuel, the fuel of pride is comparison. And so if you remove the comparison, you remove the pride. And that's where Christianity, real Christianity, is uniquely able to produce humble people because Christianity is grace. It says salvation is not wages that are paid on a sliding scale. It is a gift given to the undeserving sheerly because of the grace of Jesus and all that Jesus has done for us. Grace is grace, right? There's no more in grace. There's no better in grace. Grace is just grace. Grace removes the comparison and then the pride. And only grace can do it, which means only Christianity can produce people like this. Lewis again, he says, if you want to be humble, here's the first step. You need to realize that you're proud. That's the first step. That's the biggest step, he said. The thing that requires supernatural power and change in your life. But if you think... The moment you begin to think that you are not proud, guess what? That means you are. Paul imagines a church of people who, because of grace, have been drained of their pride and selfishness, their conceit and selfish ambition, and instead possess a supernatural ability to put others first. But third, and we need to get, we need to get done here because we've got to come to the Lord's table this morning too. But third, there is, so how you can feel, right? We feel what the Lord is pressing us towards, but how do you make, how do you make it happen? What is, what is it that makes humility like that possible? There's a hope. There's a hope. This is the how. There's a real cost to humility. It means losing. It means sacrificing. It means dying. It means taking up your cross and following Jesus into death. I don't want to like undersell you on that. That's what putting somebody else ahead of you does. You're dying so that they might live. That is the decision that you're making when you push towards one, somebody else in humility. And that's why the second part of this section is so important because it says this one who, though he was God, made himself nothing. It says, therefore, it starts in verse 9, therefore, because of his humility and love and obedience, God has not left him in that state of humiliation, but he has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. So the cross turned to resurrection. That is what Christianity claims. The state of humiliation was followed by a state of exaltation. Jesus was raised and ascended back into heaven. He was coronated. All of the glory that was his before was restored to him. And he, in this moment, remains highly exalted and he will be for all eternity. What does that have to do with us? Paul Miller has written a book called J-Curve, but it is the subtitle of the book that gives us the answer. And the subtitle is this, Dying and Rising with Jesus in Everyday Life. And here is the point he makes. He says, Philippians 2, Jesus is dying and rising. His going down into the bottom of the J-curve in humility and love and then being raised on the other side by the power of God. This is the narrative structure of life for every person who believes in him and follows him. If you're a Christian, this is Paul's contention, Paul Miller, not the apostle, we have to distinguish. If you're a Christian, your life will look like Jesus' life. You will live a J-curve too. That's verses 3 through 4. Right? I remember going to a pastor's conference years ago where somebody asked John Piper how to find a life of suffering, which why somebody would ever ask that question. I was not really, I was thinking, let's don't talk about that. Like, why are, my conscience doesn't need that sitting on its, I don't need that sitting on my heart. Just be quiet. But Piper's answer was brilliant. I thought he said, if you don't, he said, he said, listen, you got it all wrong. You don't find a life of suffering. A life of suffering will find you. 
if you simply commit to loving other people. And Paul, Paul Miller in that book has this great insight. It's my favorite little phrase in the book. He says, the love we choose almost always draws us into the love we don't choose. <laughs> and I think that's so true. There's, there's early slippage down the J-curve that's easy, right? You answer the phone and have no idea how, how the turn your life is going to take by simply answering the phone. There's, there's early slippage down the J-curve that's easy, and you choose it, but then you begin to slip deeper and deeper and lose more and more control. You choose the demands of love at first, but then the demands of love start to choose you. That's how it happens. But here's the thing, but it's okay. Because Jesus' story doesn't end in death. It ends in resurrection and glory. And so, if you've been united to him by faith, then the narrative structure of your life doesn't end in death either. It will end in resurrection too. The Bible says, if you believe, then you die with him. But if you die with him, then you will also be raised with him. And that is true in the ultimate sense. Your days will not end with death. Right? We believe that? If you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe in him, your days will not end in death. They will not end. They won't end in death. They won't end. Your future is resurrection. But here, here's the thing, but also true of everyday life, the small thing as well as the big things. And here's the promise. Every time out of obedience and love to Jesus that you humble yourself in love, he will come and raise you up. If you exalt yourself, you will be humbled. But if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. And so here's what that means. You and I, we can follow Jesus down into the bottom of the J-curve, whatever that might mean. We can follow him down into the bottom of the J-curve today because tomorrow there will be resurrection. Now be careful. Maybe not tomorrow, tomorrow. But some inevitable tomorrow. You know how I know? Because Jesus is alive. And he is right now in that exalted place in heaven with all power and authority above every other name. And with that name, ensuring that all of our stories, all of the stories that make up our lives will, in the totality of all things, end in resurrection too. And so we can say with the hymnist, may the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling all I do and say, may the love of Jesus fill me as the waters fill the sea. Him exalting, self-abasing, this is victory. Pray with me if you would. So, Father, we come now to this meal. Because even though you have so clearly spoken to us in your word, it still, there is a, there is a part of our hearts that are so slow to believe. And so thank you that in your goodness to us, you have ordained that we not only can hear, but can also see and taste and touch the reminders of the promises that you've made to us, that truly indeed you have laid down your life in the person of the Lord Jesus for us. His body broken for us, his blood shed for us as the model of the way you mean for us to live empowered by your spirit. So even as we celebrate this meal, may the hope of resurrection be like electricity in the air in the room this morning. That's my prayer. Make it so. So we can, so we can come nearer to you in this moment. I pray it in Jesus' name.
whatever strength you might find in your, in your legs to come to him, know this. Take one step toward him and he will come sprinting towards you. Um, that is what the incarnation means. It's what the parable, parable of the prodigal son means, that he has already come. He comes all the way to us. And so we come to him, uh, not even thinking about ourselves, but knowing that in whatever condition he finds us, he loves us. If we would just bring our hearts, bring ourselves to him. But as you do so, he would fill you with his love and then send you into the world uh, to do for others the exact thing, same thing he's done for you. And so this is ascending. He sends us now with these words to go, not out of your own strength, but to go knowing that his love is sufficient enough to produce in you an echo of that same love as you love and serve others. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.